coming up on Philosophy Talk. The beginning is simple, almost comic. The mystery of music. Bassoons, basset horns, like a rusty squeeze box. What exactly should I be trying to hear when I listen to music? And then, suddenly, high above it, an oboe. What makes good music good? A single note hanging there, unwavering. They say beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So is beautiful music in the ear of the beholder? But then what would it mean to have a good ear for music? That some people have bad ears? This was a music I've never heard. Our guest is Adrian Daub, co-author of the James Bond songs, pop anthems of late capitalism. It seemed to me that I was hearing a voice of God. The Mystery of Music. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Said potent hands at midnight. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the Stageworks Theater in the heart of the Mission District in lovely San Francisco. Our thinking originates at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. That's where Ken teaches philosophy, and I did for 40 years. 40 wonderful years, my friend. Welcome, everyone, to Philosophy Talk. Now, today, we're thinking about the mystery of music. Can music is an amazing thing. It can, can move us or make us cringe. It can lift us up or bring us down. But how does music work its magic? What separates good music from bad? Why do different people react so differently to the same sound? Oh, John, I know the answer. It's all a matter of taste. Totally subjective. You like Beethoven, but his music leaves me cold. I love the Beatles, but you can take them or leave them. I mean, what more is there to say? Well, there's a lot more to say. I think you're missing something if you're not uplifted by Beethoven's Ode to Joy. If you're not haunted by his Moonlight Sonata. And as for the Beatles, who could hear yesterday and not feel an intense sense of longing? <laughs> John Sonnell, who went and appointed you? John Barry, the arbiter of musical taste. I don't claim to be the arbiter of anything. I just notice things. Consider this. Suppose I put my hand right in front of your big brown eyes. And you say, oh, that's not a hand, that's a foot. What then? Well, we need time to get my eyes checked. Exactly. But, but what in the world does that have to do with tasted music? There's a right and a wrong in visual perception. There's a right and a wrong in listening to music. Musical perception is no more or less subjective than visual perception. Visual perception is partly subjective. You might like the hand you see or not like it, but it's got to be responsive to what's out there in the world, and it's the same with musical perception. It's partly subjective, to be sure, but it's also got to be responsive to what's objectively out there in the music. If you don't hear the longing in yesterday, you've got flawed musical perception. You've got to get your ears checked. Oh, John, what's flawed, my friend, is your analogy. It conflates two distinct things. It conflates perception and taste. Look, let me break it down to you. Music is just sound. And I ask you, how do we perceive sound? 
uh, sense of hearing, just a wild guess? Yeah, that's right. Now, if you and I hear the same musical sound, we hear the same sounds, then we perceive the same musical reality, don't we? Because all the music is is the sound we hear. Well, first of all, there's no guarantee that uh, C-sharp sounds the same to both of us. But let's assume that it does. What's your point, if any? If you happen to like the sound of the C-sharp and I don't, well, it doesn't follow that one of us hasn't heard something that one of us has misperceived the C-sharp. It's just that the C-sharp appeals to you and it doesn't appeal to me. That's all there is to it. Don't. No, I don't think that is all there is to it. Uh, uh, l let me try another angle uh, to see if it, you're up to understanding my point. Uh, think about beer. Do you like beer? You do like beer, don't you? Oh, you know, I love beer. Oh, especially a soft and creamy stout or a fruity Belgian ale. I didn't know you were such a connoisseur. You know, frankly, I used to hate the stuff. During my college years, for example, I would chug the first few beers and then the taste of the rest of it, which I couldn't stand, wouldn't bother me so much. So what changed in you? I started drinking better beer, obviously, as I got more money, better beer. Were you drinking better beer or were you a better beer drinker? I bet as a novice beer drinker, you couldn't tell a Pilsner from an Amber. <laughs> oh, you do have a point there. But, but as you drank more and gained more experience, your palate became more refined. You gradually became attuned to the subtle differences among beers and learned to take pleasure in them. I'm sure you do drink better beer these days, but I'm sure you've also become a better beer drinker. And don't lose heart. You can become good at listening to music, too. Look, 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 John. <laughs> I'm going to admit, I, I'm certainly more discriminating, better at discriminating one beer from another than I used to be. I could tell you uh, Scotch Ale from a Belgian. I could do that. But it doesn't necessarily follow at all that I'm going to like this or that beer better than, better than that beer just because I can tell them apart. It doesn't determine my taste. But your refined palate makes you a better judge of true beer quality, doesn't it? I mean, if I said... You're wrong. Your, your frothy Belgian beer isn't as good as my cheap India hoppy pale ale. You'd just say I was wrong, wouldn't you? Well, yeah. So who would you trust to discriminate beer? The young you or the old you? Oh, well, definitely the old me. The young me didn't know anything about except cheap, yucky crap. So definitely the old me. That's because aesthetic taste is partly a skill, a skill we can get better at. To help us think about how we might enhance our own listening skills, especially you, we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Shuka Kalantari, to talk to a musicologist. She files this report with the help of the techno group Daft Punk. One More Time was the number one Billboard dance club song in the year 2000. The video has since gotten tens of millions of views on YouTube. I guess the Daft Punk have it figured out. They know how to make you feel good. Matt Shoemaker is a composer and music lecturer at the University of California, Berkeley. He says the reason people love the song so much is the hook. The thing about the hook is that it repeats over and over again. So as we're listening to a song, that repetition makes it very predictable. Our brains like predictable sounds. And every time we predict the next sound in a song accurately, we give ourselves a mental pat on the back and give our brain a little shot of endorphins. And we have this momentary good feeling that goes along 
with accurate prediction because once again the brain is trying to make sure that we're always predicting what's going on around us so we make sure we don't become the prey of some mean animal or something like that. And the opposite of a hook? Let's step back a century to 1913, the year Igor Stravinsky released The Rite of Spring. The audience rioted. Unlike Daft Punk, it's hard to know what sound to expect next with Stravinsky. Our brains get confused. And it ends up that Stravinsky consciously composed these accents in such a way that they would defeat all of our expectations. And so in this way, he's creating this type of dissy, un unease and so forth in the music. Most music, like Daft Punk, adheres to our auditory expectations. Others, like Stravinsky, go against it. Shoemaker himself is more in the Stravinsky boat. He wants to challenge what we're used to hearing. You know, I also make orchestral music, orchestral music that makes use of analyses, for instance, of car sounds, like Formula One car sounds, and, and produces its harmony from the sounds of cars that are rushing by you. Then there's sad music. Hello, it's me. When we're sad, we speak more quietly. Our pitch is lower and has a narrow range. Sad music just reflects the sound of human sadness. So why do we torture ourselves so much? Because we humans are programmed to take care of ourselves when we're sad. We release a sedating chemical to our brain called prolactin, and we like it. So if we're hearing music that is evoking sadness or something in us, then our brain will go ahead and release this tranquilizing uh, chemical. Uh, but the fact is, like, uh, you know, it's just a song in the end. So we get the tranquilizing effect for, for free. The majority of the time, music is a reflection of us. Happy songs sound like we're happy. Sad songs sound like we're sad. And occasionally, you have folks like Igor Stravinsky or UC Berkeley's Matt Shoemaker who want to mess with our ears a little and challenge the way we listen. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Shuka Kalantari. Want to hear more? You can find the complete episode on iTunes Music or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.